like? Be able to have that played back and see again? No less important to you and me is being able to sit here this morning and to hear the preaching of God's word and be able to sing praises to him. This is an event that we can say to God be the glory. I want you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of First Peter. We've been in a series in First Peter. We'll be in chapter 4. And it just so happens the very next message is one that I wanted to preach anyway, apart from the, uh, the series. I want to preach this message this morning for our anniversary. And so I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to read the last three verses of the chapter. 1 Peter. It says in verse number 17, 1 Peter 4, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. What caught my attention in this passage is found in verse 17. The time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. I scratched my head wondering, God, what do you mean by this? What, what is it that you're talking about? What judgment must begin at the house of God? And that led me into a study, a sobering study, the likes of which I want to share with you this morning. And I entitled it, Church, Prepare to be Judged. <laughs> let's, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your love and your goodness and blessing and for the sweet time we've already had this morning. I trust that you've been glorified. And Lord, I am worthless standing here apart from your grace. Fill me, Holy Spirit of God. And I pray that you might do the work in us that you long to do. For we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Normally, I'd be a little more nervous about presenting a message like this. But we have, for several weeks, been talking about suffering. So I know you're prepared for this. And so sit back and let's enjoy this message. In Ezekiel chapter 9, I want to read for you a few verses as a foundational text message here. In Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, here's a vision that God gave to Ezekiel. God prophesied to him the coming invasion by Babylon. Now, if you've been around here for a length of time, you know it because we've talked about it a great deal, but, uh, but God was going to judge Israel, he judged Judah because they were so steeped in idolatry and they were living wicked lives. He said even the priests were drunkards during this time. And because they refused to give up their idol, false god worship, God said, I'm going to judge you, which he did by, first of all, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And the Babylonians came and in three sieges came and deported them from Judah, taking them clear over into Babylon, and they destroyed the city. Ezekiel 9.4 And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And to the others he said in mine hearing, Go ye after him through the city, 
and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. I want to repeat that. And begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. This is a powerful passage describing, first of all, the degradation of which God's people were living at this time. Wicked. And those who were leading the charge of wickedness were the religious leaders. Abominable lives. Not just full of pride, which is horrible in itself, but they were incredibly hypocritical. Again, being drunkards, setting up false god worship centers, even in the temple of Jehovah. And they would lead, God, lead the people of God in their worship of Jehovah. Then they would take them over. Now let's worship Ashtoreth. Now let's worship Molech. Let's worship these false gods. And God had enough. In the vision, he told his angels to go through and put a mark on all those who are sick and tired of the sinful state of their people. Those that sigh over it. Those whose hearts are broken because of the sinful condition of my people. You put a mark on their forehead. You mark them so they stand out, so, they, so we realize they're different. But everybody else, you're going to come and you're going to wipe them out. You're going to destroy them. You're going to kill them. Old people, young people, husbands, wives, little children, they're all going to be destroyed. Of course, this was a prophecy of Babylon's invasion. God was about to unleash their army on Jerusalem. But notice, it was going to begin at the temple of God. The judgment was going to begin at the house of God. God gave some sort of special protection to those who were grieved over the sinful condition of his people, and we're not told what it was. But somehow he spared them, a small remnant. Among this was Jeremiah. He spared him from the devastation. God's judgment would begin at the core of the problem. The religious leaders who had led their nation away from God and into idolatry. It says here that judgment would begin in the house of God. Now I want to go to our text passage with that as a foundation. In 1 Peter 4.17, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? What is the house of God? We have to ask ourselves, what is the house? Where is it going to begin? Well, at the house of God. What's the house of God? We're no longer in the temple of God. That was a Jewish. We're not Jews. So what is the house of God? Well, in 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul writes, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. In the New Testament, the house of God, simply put, is the church. You are sitting this morning in the house of God. What an appropriate place to be. This is God's house. 
you're in the right place. You made an effort to be here this morning in God's house. Better behave. It's God's house. Better not leave any trash. It's God's house. <laughs> it's also a spiritual house. In 1 Peter 2.5, Ye also as lively or living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So you're living in, or you're seated this morning in the house of God, the very house of God that he said was where judgment was to begin. Well, first of all, according to the scriptures, why does judgment fall? What brings God to a place where he allows judgment? Revelation 3.19, God says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So it may sound peculiar, but the first reason that judgment falls is because God loves us. <laughs> My dad would say, this is going to hurt me more than it does you, and to this day I don't believe him. <laughs> God spanks because he loves. God's chasten. God chastens those his own, those he loves. Because God knows just what a wise father knows that apart from loving scriptural discipline the foolishness that's bound in the heart of that child will remain there god first of all judges because of his deep love for us secondly god judges for taking the death of his son casually in first corinthians eleven twenty seven, wherefore Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But he encourages us, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation or condemnation to himself, destruction, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. You see, God watched the agonizing death of his son on the cross. When Jesus became sin for us, we're told that God had to turn his back on his son for the first time in eternity. It should uh, affect the way that you and I live and act. When believers' lives begin to resemble the world around them instead of that of his son, he begins to chasten us to bring us back to him. You see, his chastening never affects our salvation because once you're saved, you're always saved, but believers still sin. I was 11 years old. I had a lifetime potential of sinning. I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, but still, I'm 11 years old. 11-year-olds are going to sin, especially if they have sisters knew what it meant to sin, but I also knew what it meant to come to Jesus and to confess my sin and have it forgiven because I was one of his children. You see, he, once the believer is trusted in Christ, he cannot lose it. However, he knows we need periodic chastening to keep us on track. My girls, bless their hearts, are wonderful, wonderful people, wonderful mothers, 
wonderful Christians serving in churches. <laughs> but they needed a lot of correction going, growing up. They needed, they needed some, some, some timeouts that were painful timeouts <laughs> in their growing up years. God judges for taking the death of his son Jesus casually. I love it when we take time and we pause at the end of a service and celebrate the Lord's Supper. I love it because it gives us a chance just to meditate upon God's goodness and the fact that Jesus died on the cross for us. But we ought not wait for that periodic Lord's Supper. We ought to be reveling in the death of Christ daily and thanking him for it. God next judges us to protect us from ultimate destruction. In 1 Corinthians 11.32, it says, But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. God spanks us so we don't become just like the world and experience the same judgment as the world. God's purpose for chastening the believer is to remind us to stay clear from the temptations of those around us. Christians participating in simple ways of the world will experience the same judgment as the world. I'm not talking about going to hell. I'm talking about judgment now. For instance, smoking has a tendency of giving cancer, whether you're saved or not. Drunkenness can destroy homes and cause deadly accidents, whether you're saved or not. Lying can ruin a reputation, saved or not. And bitterness can make a life miserable and shorten it, whether you're saved or not. So upon whom does God's judgment begin? Well, we're told right here, upon the house of God. The judgment of God in Ezekiel began at the house of God. First Peter says the judgment comes, in fact, First Peter 4.17, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. The way I read this, God's judgment begins at church. Every so often, I believe God brings judgment upon a church to both purify it and to refocus its attention back on Him. Oh, it's so easy to get distracted. So easy to get distracted on good things to the negligence of Him. We can, we can argue and debate over a color of carpet or wall coloring. All the while, God is saying, why don't you glorify my son? Let, let's, not get, let's not get tied up in, in bitter arguing and dissensions. Let's love one another and praise and glorify my son. God's judgment begins at church. Next, God's judgment begins with his own. Are you one of his own this morning? Are you a child of God? Has there been a time in your life where you have personally put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, trusting him to save you? Then you're a child of God. Hebrews 12, 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Did you notice? Every son, every child of God, he scourges when he needs it. God's love for his own children prompts him to bring judgment to them when they need it. His judgment toward his children is never out of vindication or spite. 
It's always motivated by love. So, according to this passage, what's the basis for God's judgment? Well, Romans 2 and verse 8 teaches us that God judges according to our obedience. That's pretty profound. If you had been in my home when my girls were young, you would find out that most oftentimes when my girls got in trouble, it's because they disobeyed. You go make your bed, and they found other things to do than to obey. They disobeyed. You'd never do that, would you? You'd never disobey God, right? <laughs> In Romans 2, verse 8 and following, But unto them that are contentious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. God rewards obedience. When we obey him, he rewards it. But he judges disobedience. It's really profound. There's nothing complicated about it. We know that if we please God and obey him, he'll bless us. If we refuse to, he won't bless us. That's a general person. By the way, that principle is a general principle whether you're saved or not. If you're living a life that's a righteous life, you're going to receive more blessings than if you're living an unrighteous life. An unsaved person who's a good citizen and being good to other people and serving others is going to have a much more blessed life than an unsaved person who's living in the world, gambling away all their money, getting in trouble all the time. See, it's, the principle is the same. God holds us responsible for what we know. It's important. Believers who knew the truth but ignored it will receive the greater judgment. In Luke 12, 47, and that servant which knew his Lord's will. That's so critical to understand this. The servant that knew what his Lord wanted and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. You see, God's fair. God judges fairly. He knows what we know. He knows what we don't know. For instance, if a believer has been to church regularly and heard on a regular basis that he should read and study the Bible. But for whatever reason, he chooses to ignore it. He can expect God to bring chastening into his life, encouraging him to read the Bible. God will hold him to a higher level of accountability than the person who has only recently been saved and coming to church. But God holds us responsible for what we know. Next, God always has the final word. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He said, if you're troubled about that, 
if you're troubled about the condition of the world around you and it seems like they're getting by with it, don't worry. Don't worry. I got this, God says. I got this. It often appears that the ungodly are getting by with their ungodliness. They're prospering. And God's doing nothing to chasten them. It's not fair. God says, don't worry. God's seeing everything. And he will bring everyone to a final justice. In Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Next verse in our passage, our text in verse number 18, 1 Peter 4, And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Well, first of all, what's a barely saved Christian? <laughs> I mean, you're as saved or you're not, right? I'm going to heaven. Why? Because I trusted Christ. You know, you're, either, you're either in the camp or out. You're either a saved person or you're an unsaved person. But here it says... If the righteous, so those in this grouping of saved people, the righteous, are scarcely saved. Well, according to Scripture, apparently a barely saved or scarcely saved Christian who's a believer who has never grown, first of all. A believer who never grew in the Lord, first of all. Hebrews 5.12, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers... Ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, not of strong meat. You've been saved for years, and we still have to feed you with a bottle, spiritually, he says. Well, that's one who is scarcely saved. This passage in Mark has been hotly debated, but I want to give you my, my take on it. In Mark chapter 4, and verse 3, it says, Hearken. Behold, there went out a sower to sow. It came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground, where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. Ah, praise God for verse 8. And other fell on good ground, and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, some sixty, some a hundred. Oh, that, that last one's great. I love that. The last one sprang up, and oh, they multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. What I see here are different kinds of soils. Same seed, but the seed is planted in different kinds of soils, and it describes what happens in the various soils to the seed. First of all, in the wayside. So you got this kernel of corn. You know what a kernel of corn looks like. The sower goes out and he's got a, a bag full of, uh, full of corn. So he reaches in and he casts that corn out. And some of it falls on what's called the wayside. Now the wayside is where they walked. Some of you have a garden. And you know, around that garden, you don't want to walk on the place you want to keep cultivated. You want to make sure that stays real loose, the soil lo loose. But you're going to have a path there you're going to walk on. And after a while, that path gets really, really tramped down and hard. I mean, it gets rained on and then walked on and rained on and walked on. It's just cement. So a kernel of corn falling on the wayside, there's no way that's going to sprout. The birds are going to see that. The birds are going to come and eat that up, and it's gone. 
There's no life there. But notice what happens in the stony ground. In the stony ground, there was life. There was sprouted life. It sprang up. Now, if it didn't spring up, there wouldn't be life. But because it sprung up, there was life. It sprang up rather quickly because it got scorched. It didn't develop a root system. But it did have life. This is critical to understanding, I believe, this story. In the first one, there's no life. The seed fell in the ground, no life. But the second one, it fell on stony ground, and there was life. Now, tragically, however, tragically got scorched, died, it died off. I see this as Christians, they get saved. But then reality of life hits them, and they say, I thought once I got saved, nothing bad would happen to me. And this trial, oh, man, I'm just going to quit. Now, don't miss the part that there was life. And if there was life, if I got saved, does that mean all of a sudden I can lose my salvation? Well, of course not. I've known some people who trusted Christ, sincerely trusting Christ. But then their life got hit with some of the most amazing trials, and they couldn't handle it. And sadly, there was no one there to help them through it. And they gave up. What about those on thorny ground? Once again, there's life. The life sprouts, but it's not long before they get choked out. And I've known some people who've come to Christ. They've trusted Christ. But because we weren't thorough enough to follow up on them, there were cults who were more than happy to follow up on them. And whether it was Jehovah's Witnesses or, or the Mormons or name it, another cult coming along, and they would be happy <laughs> to disciple them. And disciple they did. And they choked them out. Were they saved? Well, there's life. See, that's the point. There's life. But because there wasn't a deep root, they got choked out. Now, the next one is on good ground. But it says something interesting here. They fell on good ground and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth. Boy, lots of it, 30, 60, some hundred. Does that mean that a believer has to be a prolific fruit bearer to be saved? Haven't you known some people? who've trusted Christ, but they have never shown fruit. They've never brought someone to church with them. They've never said, listen, let me share, you with, share with you somebody I trusted, or that trusted Christ because I showed the gospel. Never, never experienced fruit of their life. Does that mean then they're not saved? Or does that mean, yes, they got saved, they've never grown? Or could we say, according to this passage, they were scarcely Saved. What's a barely saved Christian? One who, first of all, never grew in the Lord, and then secondly, one who backslides. Do you believe that a Christian can backslide? I do. Because I've done it. Didn't lose my salvation. I lost my fellowship with God. In 1 Corinthians 3.15, If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Just made it. Oh, 
he's in heaven, but he just made it. No works. There's no rewards. He's in heaven, but, but, but just in heaven. For eternity, no rewards. Praise God, he's going to be blessed. He's going to be face-to-face with, with the Savior. But there won't be the rewards that he longs to have to cast at Jesus' feet. Because he's scarcely saved. This is the Christian who lived for pleasure. Oh, he's saved. He's got this salvation thing down pat. You ask him, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? Oh, yes, I trusted Christ when I was four or whatever. But living for pleasure, perhaps living for financial security, living out of self-effort, living with pride. All the works that we do in pride will be burned away. When the, when the righteous backslide, they could expect judgment. Ezekiel 18, verse 24. But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness. Did you catch it? The righteous man, he, he stops being righteous. He turns away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity. And doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth. Shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned. In his trespass that he has trespassed. And in his sin that he hath sinned, in them shall he die. Do you mean it's possible that I could live my life for Christ? Years serving Christ and then for whatever reason be discouraged and quit. And to the degree I was serving Christ, I began serving my flesh. That reputation that I developed for Christ would be immediately destroyed. In Acts 14, 22, Paul worked to keep the believers from backsliding. Confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Even in tribulation, Paul said, don't backslide. In Hebrews 10, verse 38, now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Backsliding from faith, he says, will bring destruction. Why? Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if I lose my faith, doesn't mean I lose my salvation. That's impossible. What it means is if I lose my faith, I can no longer please God. And backsliding from faith brings a destruction in my life. In the last part of verse 18, it says, Where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now think about the, the picture being described here. If a Christian, somebody who's trusted Christ, just barely gets to heaven. Oh, they're there. They get to spend eternity with Christ in heaven. But they're just there. No rewards. No souls are they taking with them. But they're there. Hallelujah. 
They're scarcely saved. Where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? If the Christian is barely there, what about those that aren't Christians? That's what he's asking. In Psalm 1 and verse 5, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The ungodly will not be able to stand at God's judgment. They will be cast in the lake of fire. They will be separated from the righteous. In Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. God's wrath will be against the ungodly and sinners. If Christians are barely there, then what about the ungodly and sinners who are lost? In Jude 1.15, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. The ungodly and sinners will be convinced of their ungodliness. And then Revelation 21, verse 8. What about these? The lost. If believers are just getting there, just barely getting there, what about the lost? Revelation 21, verse number 8. It says, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters, notice, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The ungodly and sinners are those who have not trusted Christ. They're still under the smothering weight of their sins. And in that group are those, the Bible says, will be cast into the lake of fire. And one of the categories is all liars. Now, I like to tell people when I'm sharing the gospel with them, I said, how many times would a person have to kill somebody for them to get the reputation of being a murderer? Well, that's an easy one. Just one time. Go ahead and murder somebody. My land, the papers get a hold of that. You end up in prison. Why? Because you are a murderer. For the rest of your life, you're a murderer. Why? Because you killed somebody. A murderer. But somewhere along the line, we didn't take that same philosophy with lying. What about if you lie? What are you then? The Bible says you're a liar. Just as guilty as the man who murdered one person is the man who lies one time. He's a liar. And what is the eternal destination of all liars, the Bible says? The lake of fire. You see, there has been an abdication on the part of Christians toward the lost. Barely saved Christians feel no obligation to the lost. I've got my life to worry about. 
I've got pressures in my life. I know the world's dying and going to hell, but I've got more important things to care about. If Christians are going to barely make it, then what hope does the world have? In Ezekiel 3 and verse 18, When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood shall I require at thine hand. Being barely saved produces no concern for the souls of the lost around them. If a person gets saved but never grows in his faith, He's going to have very little concern for the lost. The ungodly and sinners in his circle of influence will remain lost and ungodly unless another believer cares enough to share with them the gospel. In Proverbs 24, verse 11, If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth not he know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? Now, I don't want any of our good people at Hope Baptist Church to just barely make it to heaven. My goodness, there's so many blessings for serving the Lord, for being faithful and walking with him on a day-by-day basis. Oh, the, the incredible blessings of, of just being a child of God and living a life in accordance and submitted to his, submissive to His will is so wonderful and rich. That's the kind of life that Paul, Christ, I desire for you. But if we're going to live our lives for ourselves, then what hope does the lost have? I want to give us a conclusion now. And the conclusion, to some degree, is the conclusion of the study we've been on in suffering. And some of you are going to say, hallelujah, finally we're concluding the suffering. <laughs> it's been tough. But notice verse number 19. As I believe, Paul kind of wraps up all his teaching on suffering in one bow. And we'll see what he's talking about here in verse number 19. Wherefore, in other words, based upon everything we said thus far, let them that suffer, according to the will of God, commit the keeping of their souls to him and well-doing, as unto a faithful creator. 1 Peter 4.12-14 says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he's evil spoken of, but on your part he's glorified. And we've talked about this, but Paul says, if you go through a time of persecution because of your stand for Christ, the spirit of glory will be upon you. And you'll be happy. No, it doesn't make any sense. I don't like persecution. I don't like pain. I don't like people to not like me. But if we're standing for Christ, 
if in sharing the gospel that Jesus loves them, if they get upset and begin calling us names or doing things for us, God says the spirit of glory will come upon you and the end result will be happiness. Oh, we're so quick to fear persecution. We're so quick to fear suffering. Oh, if I say something for Christ, they might not like me. If I tell somebody that Jesus loves them and died for them, I might get in trouble. Well, what kind of trouble is that person who's lost going to get in when they die, apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ? Trials and suffering will come, but so will happiness. And Paul knew that God could be trusted, and here I think is the, the crux of the matter. In 2 Timothy 1.11 Whereunto, Paul says, I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Paul knew that he could trust God. I know I can trust God. So why am I so worried? Why am I so fearful? Why am I so bothered to open my mouth and share the gospel of Jesus Christ if I know that I can trust God? In this uh, passage, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Reminds me of an analogy of a sinking ship. There's a ship going down. All the passengers make their way to the lifeboats. But like what happened on the Titanic, not enough lifeboats. So the ship's going down. Not enough lifeboats. Imagine the ship slowly sinking. Some begin jumping and trying to get on the lifeboats. Some actually smack into the lifeboat and make it. Some just miss the lifeboat. And they sink. Many remain on the ship, fully expecting that the ship really won't go down. But in the end, only those who actually made it in the lifeboat were saved. Regardless of their excuse, the rest all perished. The lifeboat is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's the gospel. Only by trusting in him and by faith and trusting yourself to his salvation can you be saved from your sins and escape an eternity in hell. Anything other than trusting Christ leaves you perishing outside the lifeboat. It's not fair because I have lived a life with sin. And there's no sin in heaven. My sin is responsible for putting our beloved Jesus on the cross. It's not fair that he had to suffer for me. It's not fair. But he chose to die for me. And he chose to make a way where I could be saved. And that way 
had nothing to do with my works. It had everything to do with his good work as he died on the cross. So as I've shared with you before, as a sinning 11-year-old, I knelt down and trusted Jesus Christ to both forgive my sins and to save me. And ever since that time, I know when I die, I'm going to heaven. Not because I've been sin-free, goodness, no. It's because he's keeping his word. And I'm growing through his shed blood. So this morning, as we celebrate these 12 blessed years, are you in the lifeboat? Has there been a time where you have come to Jesus Christ personally? Not on your family's coattails, assuming that because your family's in church and right with God that you'll just go on their coattails. No, every man shall give account of his own sins. When you stand before the Lord, do you know 100% for sure that you're going to go to heaven? Or do you have some doubt? The great news for today is that Jesus Christ paid for your sins completely. All he asks from us is to confess that we are sinners. He already knows it. To confess that we're sinners. And then by faith, trust him and him alone to save us. Have you come to Jesus and simply trusted him to save you? If not, this could be your day of salvation. If you have, if you're in the lifeboat, are you barely saved? Are you scarcely saved? Or have you grown in your walk with the Lord and has given to you a compassion for the lost to where you're praying for them, to where you're actively trying to win others to Christ? I want us to bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. And in the quietness of this moment, I want you to consider what's being preached this morning. First of all, are you in the lifeboat? Do you know for sure that heaven is your home? If not, you could be by trusting Christ this morning. And if you're in the boat, you know that you're saved, but you're just in it. You're coming alone. No rewards, no living for Christ, no one you've won to Christ, no one you've even shared the gospel with, barely saved. What chance does the lost have? I wonder if the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart this morning. If so, would you respond? No one's looking around, the eyes are closed, your heads are bowed. Would there be anyone in this audience this morning would say with an uplifted hand, Pastor, I don't know for sure that I'm going to heaven when I die, but I want to know, would you pray for me? Anyone in that condition this morning? Pastor, I don't know for sure that heaven is my home, but I want to know, would you pray? Put your hand up so I can see it. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Pastor, I don't know for sure, but I want to know, would you pray for me? Jesus Christ died on the cross a lot of years ago now and he did so to pay for the sins of all mankind and from us he says it's got to be an act of faith you got to believe you got to believe that Jesus died on the cross 
was buried and rose again three days later. And then he says, by confessing that you're a sinner, but she already knows, and by trusting in him, you can be saved. So in the quietness of this moment, in your heart, you could pray, dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I believe you died on the cross for me. I'm now asking you and you alone to forgive me. And I'm trusting you to save me. And then simply thank him for saving you. Lord, I pray that you might continue to bless. And for all of our believers here, may we grow in our walk with you. And may there be many who come to Christ because of it. And we'll give you the praise for it. For we love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen.